Welcome to the Paradise Paradox. My name's Kurt Robertson. The other day, Aaron and I had a chance to catch up with Kenny Pellerintano on his little his adventure going across North America, uh, otherwise known as Turtle Island, uh, on his journey on the way to Acapulco, his his road to Acapulco tour, uh, in which he's visiting various festivals and events, meeting with uh, interesting liberty-minded people, uh, and we talk about a lot of a lot of fun things, uh, his experiences, um, and we talk about uh, philanthropy, um, Manoj Bhargava, um, about, about, um, donating money to, uh, improve the world. Uh, we talk about Ken, Kenny's experience going to rainbow gatherings and talking with, uh, different kinds of anarchists, uh, the different ideas about property that they have, the idea of, commu- uh, respecting the rules of, of the community you're in. Uh, and we discuss uh, the non-aggression principle as it relates to property. Um, very great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, remember, you can jump on to Steemit, S-T-E-E-M-I-T dot com slash at paradise dash paradox. And of course, you can find Kenny on there as well. Steemit dot com slash at Kenny's Kitchen, K-E-N-N-Y-S. K-I-T-C-H-E-N, Kenny's Kitchen. Uh, and so Steemit is a platform where you can uh, vote and, and create content and get paid for it. Uh, so in that respect, it definitely is ahead of Facebook. So have a look at that, steemit.com. You can also jump onto our site, uh, donate.theparadiseparadox.com if you want to give us a tip, show a token of your appreciation. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate it a lot. And one last thing, of course, Kenny could use a little financial support to continue his journey across Turtle Island, uh, distributing literature and and teaching people, cooking people great uh, vegan food to try to demonstrate concepts of of liberty and uh, keep the the conversation going around the the United States. So uh, you can have a look in the show notes or the description, there's a there's a link there um, so you can see how to help out. Even if you can just give give Kenny a few dollars, uh, I'm sure he he appreciates every single penny that he receives to to help him doing to help him keep doing his work there. So uh, go ahead and please uh, please give him a tip there for that. <laughs> Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, visiting the Houston Free Thinkers out here. It's been yep. an amazing couple of days since I got here. Yeah. So you've you've been traveling all over all over Turtle Island there and doing some exploring and what's what's the uh what's the idea behind your mystical journey? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the broad idea is just uh, you know, being of service to others and working on healing myself, as I see those as the two you know, most potent ways to move the, the ideas of freedom and, and cooperation forward. Um, right now, the focus has been, uh, I don't know, it's been kind of cool just hanging out with, uh, going to a few different spots and hanging out with people who I've followed on YouTube and stuff for years now. Um, yeah, I left Oregon. I was back for a couple of weeks and uh, just launched into this new little piece. I'm calling the the Road to Anarchapulco in uh, 
went down to Arizona and stayed with Adam Kokesh, helped build out on his land and just like actually got to know him uh, you know, for the first time because we've, we've had conversations here and there at events and stuff, but never like together for days at a time with just, you know, a few of us around. And that was, that was pretty awesome. And then came out here and these guys had their, their 12th uh, for the community festival, which was fucking awesome. Uh, it was like just a whole day of three stages of anarchists for the I would assume most of them are, and all of them are, whether they know it or not, but uh, it's really good music, some, some great vendors, and uh, I brought cases of freedom from Adam to give away, and it was great, the, you know, the conversations that handing out a book like that will start, and then uh, there was a, a Standing Rock benefit concert here at the Freethinker House uh, two nights ago, and yesterday was kind of just recovery day, <laughs> and uh, yeah, my next my next scheduled stop was Montana, but the the event up there got canceled. Um, one of the people throwing it ended up in the hospital recently, so now I'm just kind of uh, looking around. I got like a week to get to to do whatever, so I'm seeing what's gonna what's gonna fill that gap. And then, yeah, back in back in Oregon, Washington, for a while. I'll be back uh, for like the longest time that I have since I hit the road, and. Uh, go back and revisit all the old communities that I connected with when I was around and you know do interviews with them and stuff and try to help spread the work that's being done out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like intentional communities. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of them around Oregon and Washington. Uh, there's like five eco-villages just in the city of Portland itself. You know, one of them used to be a hotel that they converted. Now it's like 45 apartments. We took out the entire parking lot and put in bike parking, covered the whole thing with solar panels. And they're like 15 blocks from the center of downtown. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but they have like, like they have a whole, whole garden on the roof or something, or like every window has a, has a, a pot plant in it or something. <laughs> uh, they've got some hanging stuff. They've got just a bunch of garden space around it because it, uh, it was a good sized lot that they, you know, it was like a full city block. And so, yeah, they tore out all the concrete in the whole thing and just put in gardens and some little walking trails. And, uh, yeah, it's got parking for, like, 80 bikes out there. <laughs> Great. But how did they uh, go about starting a project like that? Like, did, did they did they squat the, the, uh, the hotel into at least, like, take adverse possession of it? Or they funded it, like, crowdfunded it? Or how, how did they begin it? Uh, that one, um, the hotel, I think, just went up for sale, and there was a few people that got together and just managed to come up with enough to get you know a down payment started. And then wow. once you have once you have a piece of land or a, you know a building like that, the people just come flocking in because there's way more people looking to to land somewhere than there are you know with the land already. Mm-hmm. And then they just yeah. like all right, yeah, I can hear hey. you. <laughs> oh good, I'm back. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so I just turned up, but we talking about people that are setting up like homesteads and people would just turn up to help out? Yeah, well, we're just uh, talking about uh, I'm about to head back to Oregon and interview a bunch of the communities out there. And so we're talking about some. Cool. Um, yeah, he was just asking about like how they get started. And 
you know, there's one in Portland that there was a hotel and they, they bought up the old building after the hotel closed and just converted it to apartments and stuff. And then, uh, well, like, there's another one, um, Foster Village, it's called. And uh, again, right near downtown Portland. And they bought a house, you know, just a couple people. And then they had friends move in and, you know, pay rent with them. And then the house next door went up for sale. And they got some more people together, bought that house, took down the fences, tore out all the concrete, split the property again, and they built uh, Portland's first straw bale house behind it. So now they've got three houses on these two little plots and a huge permaculture farm. They've got like six different styles of compost going at all times. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what's going on right there. It's, it's one of the definitely the the place where i've seen the most integration between these villages and people still living in the city you know most of the time it's folks a good hour hour and a half outside of town or whatever and in portland we've got them just spread out all over the city itself yeah that blows me away in the city because i mean it's usually land prices right that keep people away from the city right yeah well that's I guess most of these started at least a few years ago. And Portland was still relatively cheap until the last three or four years. And then the, with weed legalization, the prices have just started skyrocketing. That and what the, a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that and the California drought pushing a lot of people north. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, the home prices have like doubled the last two years. So it puts it right on par with where Denver's at nowadays. So with the uh, with the drought, um, I mean, I know it's pretty bad, but that's just a little bit I picked up. It's enough to have people believe in the Californian area. Uh, definitely, yeah. There's uh, well, there's like so many pieces of it. There's you know just the general weather. Some people don't like the heat and stuff like that. But then there's actually areas where they've instituted um, you know water rationing and stuff. And certainly during the dry seasons, a lot of Southern California ends up with water rationing. And so people that want to, you know, be able to do whatever they want with their water when they're at home. (laughs) And then the cost of living down there has always been crazy high, too. So moving north, you tend to save like 10% every 500 miles or so as you move up the U.S. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I I think it's pretty pretty straightforward. It's not hard to, to look up any information to let you know that most real estate um, prices are, are, are bubble-like. So I think there's, there's a lot of people here in uh, in Sydney as well. It's probably the most affected here in Australia that is just getting out or moving uh, moving up. But then that, that just moves the, the effect out further to wherever they're, they're moving to. Right. Yeah. Paying for a place to live. Um, it's crazy. It sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have who would have thought of that? Right? You can see you can see my house over there. Just chilling. Yep. It's got a veranda and everything. You're killing it. Yep. Great. <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah. uh, so Kenny, you have all these uh like you managed to, to sniff out all of these events and uh, and festivals and stuff across the US is it is it easy to do to to find these things or you just you like you network and you 
you meet one person and then you know a person? How does it work? Uh, well, it's a little of both. You know, there's there's a lot of them that are that are pretty well known and stuff. And just by searching for, you know, transformational festival or whatever, you'll come up with a good list. Um, but yeah, it's been mostly through like networking and stuff, and just meeting people, and they tell me about the little one in their town and the little one here, and you know, like here the for the community. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's relatively big. They've been doing it for years now. They're on their twelfth one. But it's you know it's mostly like a Houston-based thing. If I hadn't met Derek and the crew at the Jackalope Freedom Festival in Arizona, I never would have known about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's where you know on my website I've got the the spreadsheet that I've been making. I'm up to like 170 of them now um, that I know about, and it, that includes a bunch in Europe and a couple in Australia and down in South and Central America too. And I, now I've got friends who, when they hear about one, they'll I'll just like get random text messages that say, you know, like Costa Rica Fruit Festival, and then like a date. And I just have to go look it up and add it to the list. But I've got people doing little bits of the research for me now too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, sorry, with the um, with these um, communities and, and festivals, I mean, you're, you're probably one of the um, only people that I that I know that that really um, have dedicated themselves to going from one to one. But I, I got to ask you. I mean, I, I don't know whether you've whether you've heard, but in April, um, Joanna and I are due. So I'm wondering, is there families that follow these things as well? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna be rolling in a crew now. Yeah, and uh, it's it's gonna be interesting. <laughs> so I don't know. You, you turn up and you see like uh, you know babies running around at these things as well. I mean, oh yeah, it has to be. that's that's one of the best parts, actually. Uh, specifically at the the things that aren't quite festivals, because uh, the festivals themselves are still very centralized. You know, it's a production team coming together with very clear laid out plans for the whole event for most of yeah. them. But then there's things like the Rainbow Gathering and like the Jackalope Freedom Festival, where it's they pick the time and the place and kind of set the intention, and then people come out and do whatever they're going to do. They bring stuff to set up, they bring stuff to sell, that sort of thing. And so both of those, you know, the, the first, like, four or five days of Jackalope before a lot of people showed up, there were just, like, there was a pack of kids just running around all the time. And there was a tall kid at the front, and there was a tall kid at the back, and a bunch of little ones in between. And yeah. they would just run around the woods and, you know, they take care of themselves. There was a rope swing that a bunch of people told them was broken and they weren't going to be able to use. And then an hour later, they're over there swinging on it because they fixed it. Exactly. If you want to see anarchy, just let a bunch of kids do what they want to do. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I know a few, uh, I know one, one specifically one uh, gal with her baby. They've been on the road for three years now, you know, and they, they're at Rainbow for about two months, and then they do little Rainbow Regionals and land on farms during trim time, you know, out in Northern California. But there's definitely, there's definitely people doing it, you know, from single up to, like, whole families. Like, there's some that are, you know, multiple children and, like, the grandma and the parents all rolling around in the bus together. No way. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like the coolest thing. <laughs> um, well, I think a lot of people probably think, okay, you know, while the while the kids are younger, they've got they still have time. They still have you know until they have to go to school, and then they then they get bogged down in routine. You and I know there's options for school. Uh, are they are they groups in the in communities that do their own like uh, you know version of homeschooling, but 
you know, like different parents jump in and, and help out. Like, have you seen that as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, most of the, most of the families that I see at, at those kind of events are, are pretty much on very, very homeschooling, unschooling, or at the very least, they're doing like a Montessori, Waldorf, Sudbury, you know, one of the more, yeah, one of the less hierarchical schools, one of the less authoritarian schools. Um, yeah. But then there's also, there's a lot of organizations that that's their whole focus is uh, offering like education at these events, actually, like offering, you know, edutainment at this stuff. Up in Colorado, there's a group called Rainbow Lightning that uh, my friend Taylor started. And she basically, they have it locked down to where all the festivals uh, up and down that corridor there, the I-25 corridor, they are the kids' village. So they come out and they have a stage and they have a sound system and they have a bunch of geodesic domes and they have, you know, truckloads of art supplies and stuff. And the whole activist yeah. community up there is the people that volunteer to make that happen. So like Elias Clay, you know, at any of these festivals, you'll see her at the on the stage over in kids village teaching little kids how to freestyle and stuff and you'll see you know the sound guys showing these little kids how to set the stuff up and they'll see you know it's yeah it's really beautiful how that's been integrated into almost all of these there's a real focus on showing the kids you know things that are different from what they're used to it's not just come over and there's a bunch of things to play with like it's all educational you know learning environments for them Great. Did, did I hear you drop a new word? Edutainment? Edutainment, yeah. <laughs> what is that? That's you, like that, when they talk on television when they, when they uh, make something that's supposed to be educational, but it's actually just crap. So <laughs> I think that's going to be tarnished a little bit. But yeah. I, I, I like it. I like Kenny's use of it. It makes a lot more yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I didn't know. <laughs> Is it good or is it bad? It's like, I don't know. Is it Sesame Street? Who knows? Yeah, totally. Sesame Street is edutainment. Oh, yeah. you know? It gives them both. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the best way to entertain people is to, enter, you know, or to educate people is to entertain them. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's a big, I don't know, it's a big shift getting, uh, getting people to realize that like education doesn't come from you know one person giving information to another education comes from all of your experience when you watch somebody do something that you've never seen anybody do before you just learned about it and if you go ask them about it and you know you just follow your interest and that's that's what i've seen a lot of uh, a lot of these folks whether they send their kids to a school or not that's the real focus on what they're teaching them is that they're always they, they can always be learning and that the school environment isn't the, you know, the be all end all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but that that shift's coming. I mean, I, I think um, I personally meet more people that are looking at different things. Uh, you know, even within my family, which is shocking considering who some of these people are. Um, but it's good. I mean, o- overall, it's good. Um, but then it could just be. Okay, this is a little crazy, but it could just be me. Like, you know, Kurt and I say, is this happening worldwide or are we just meshing into different circles and, you know, changing our networks? Because um, a topic that came up a few weeks ago was um, these ayahuasca events and, uh, you know, different plant medicine style um, ceremonies. How come I didn't know anything about these stuff, this stuff before? And then now it's like, you know, there's always a friend that's doing something like this and you hear them popping up all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, so just, the, that's the nature of reality. 
right? Like <laughs> you don't you don't notice it until you until you're looking for it, you know. And then once you expect it to be there, you're gonna see it everywhere. You know. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the beauty of it all. The more that you the more you look for these things, the more you know that they're out there. The more the universe proves that to you. Yeah, it's I mean, magic. It is. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's one of the that's like the biggest thing you can see in kids who grow up in Rainbow. And you know, now I know some who were like in their twenties and early thirties, even who grew up in Rainbow. You know, they grew up living on a bus that was hopping between these events and stuff. They never went to a school. They never had a, a house somewhere. You know, they were always at home everywhere. And you can, you know, they, they aren't ever disconnected from those ideas. They never lose the knowledge of how the universe works and get put into a little box and then have to unlearn that and relearn how the universe works again. Like, we can skip all the all the back and forth and just, you know, re- help the kids remember their power when they come in. That, you know, it speeds the whole process up a lot. <laughs> yeah. And don't, yeah, just don't brainwash them, I guess. Let, <laughs> let them have a good time and, and enjoy learning and, and the way they go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it looks like Dana Martin's uh, workshop is going to be two days this year instead of just one down in Anarchapulco. Awesome. So that's, that's going to be pretty cool. That was, that, was, that was definitely one of the highlights for me last year. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was, I mean, you found it very interesting, even though you don't have, I mean, you don't have any children, do you, Kenny? No, no. No. So what, what did you learn from it, or what perspective did you get? Um, I mean, most of it was already, you know, the perspectives that I, I've already come to around, you know, preschool parenting and stuff. Like, I, that was the one thing on Molyneux's channel that I went through all of, you know. Uh, really, it was just hearing about all their their specific personal experiences with this stuff, and you know, from their first kid who was born in a hospital and they had him circumcised, to the last one that was born at home, she was by herself, he was in the other room, you know, with zero pain, and like the evolution of as they realize these things and getting better at it and better at it and trying not to trying not to judge themselves. All the beautiful sounds of the city, police sirens and helicopters. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but yeah, it was it was mostly just like the the listening to them and, and a, a couple of their kids were in the room and you know it was Dana and Joe, her husband, they were both talking and you know some of their, there was some interaction with the kids too. And for me, it was just it was crazy because I wanted to go to the workshop and it ended up being. That I got to go to the workshop in exchange for, for making treats for after her talk at the conference. And then that led to spending like all day Saturday hanging out with them and their family over at the Freeman's house. So it was like, my goal was just to go to this workshop and I ended up spending like two days with them, hanging out with the family, going to dinner before and after that. And like, you know, now we stay in touch and stuff like is perfect example of how it always just ends up being better than you can even imagine when you trust the universe to take care of it. <laughs> well said. <laughs> oh, by the way, I, I, I don't think I told you, Kenny. So a couple of weeks ago, I took Ayahuasca, and you you were in one of my visions, actually. A couple oh, yeah? Of them. Yeah, because the, <laughs> the message was, was kind of like, hey, uh, 
life's this great big adventure and you can kind of you can do whatever you want and you're always standing there and you you <laughs> with this big <laughs> smile on your face with like the world in your hands <laughs> um, because you're, i guess you're kind of this this symbol to me about uh about uh, living life the way you, you want to and and uh you know taking off and having an adventure <laughs> without awesome. limits. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. That's the whole, you know, like that's the best I hope for out of out of my work is to, you know, let people see what what's possible through doing it. You know, like that's I only talk about stuff when people ask about it. You know, I just do me and that. Yeah, it's I don't know. This is a great time to be alive, and uh, you know, a lot of people get caught up in like, oh, I can't believe I didn't learn this stuff earlier. It's like who the hell cares. You're there now. You can. You got. Yeah, yeah. With with the technology we got now, we could live to be 200 years old. Like, who knows? <laughs> just, just enjoy the ride, and man, it's it seems like the best. I don't know. It's like it's the most fun, and it seems to be the most effective as far as like activism goes. Like, it's how you, you know, I, my networks and my my reach and all like all the things that make your acting you know, all the force multipliers for activism have started expanding exponentially since i stopped really doing like activism as most people call it and just started living as free and happy as i could be right yeah really li living the living the message i guess <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was so cool. Uh, Adam's place, he's got, you know, he's got 40 acres out in the middle of the desert. Uh, and then there was, you know, there was like 10 people up there um, when, when I went up. And it was just amazing. Like, automatically, you know, somebody would start making breakfast every day. Somebody would start making lunch around that time. Like, the flow just happened really quickly. And I found out that you know, there's one couple that already lives up there. They've been up on the mountain for like 40 years. They've got the guy, uh, Shane, he's moved rock, like hundreds of tons of rock, probably. He's got like walls. They're slowly building their whole like mountainside into a castle. And he's like one of those true, like, just leave me alone libertarians. You know, he does a little <laughs> bit of the online stuff, but really he's like, I'm just don't come up my hill. Do whatever you want to do as long as I'm not involved. <laughs> and, uh, it was really cool having him there in all these conversations. The whole week we were out there was just like focusing on the optimism of it, really. It was just all of us sharing like the different reasons, the different experiences that were so optimistic about the shift and where it's going. And he came over and he was like, I don't know, all the, you know, most people don't want to listen and most people this and that and we're all just like i don't know we're going into stuff and then as the conversation progresses he stops and he's like i just had like the biggest self-realization i'm a rube like i just ran away from the city i ran into the country 20 years ago and haven't looked back like i only talk with you know people from a small town <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting to see you know uh the philosophy is still so strong there but just like you know, kind of feeling disheartened about it just because he disconnected. And, uh, mm -hmm. he, yeah, I, we stopped by his house on the way out of Adams, like, two days later, and looked around, you know, walked us through, and there's, like, 
petroglyphs and all sorts of edible cactuses and berries. You know, he's like, he just plants stuff that's local, basically, so they don't have to tend to any of it, but they've got food all over the property. And it's just awesome to see, like, somebody just doing it. You know, no community there, necessarily. Like, it's just one guy. You know, his wife has a city or a city job, and she pays the, the property taxes and stuff, and he just built, he built the house, and he's building the walls and built the gardens, and you know, just really being self-sufficient and only interacting as much as he has to to not, you know, have him yeah. after him with guns. So, the, so they really do have a, a little, well, not exactly a food forest, but that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the desert version of a food forest. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's got peyote in there as well. Probably. I didn't, I didn't see it, but I, I bet it's out there. You get enough land in, that, in the desert there, and it's going to be around even if you're not cultivating it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, there's about 20 uh, cactuses with similar uh, chemical compounds. Oh, wow. um, so there's probably one of them growing in Arizona, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and then there was another. There was a couple that had just moved out there from uh, North Carolina. And they got 40 acres, a plot or two over from Adam's land, and they, uh, myself, and a couple other people that are out there, they're like, "Hey, you guys want to come over and pick out a parcel? You can have an acre." So if I want to go live in the desert. I'm set over there now. That's uh, <laughs> kind of cool. It's it's great to see people. They they had never heard of the Rainbow Gathering. Or the rainbow, you know, any of that stuff. Then, and they just started getting more into like the anarchism, like the, the philosophy behind it. But they've been living this stuff for years. That's the and that's the beauty of it. Is most people live anarchy, you know, it, like the average person lives anarchy most of their time, and most yes. people live anarchy like all the time. And yes. it's just that they don't have the labels for it. Yeah, that. yeah. I was saying someone on on Facebook was saying to me today, ah, you know, 99.9% of people uh, believe in government and this and that. And, and I was like, no, really, dude. Like, um, especially outside of the United States, I think people, and even, you know, within the United States, people aren't especially pro or anti-government. They just kind of live their lives and, and um, they don't, they, you know, try to avoid <laughs> they try to avoid government where they can uh, a lot of the time, and and just uh, just do what they want to do. Um, it's only those certain certain few um, that actually really like kissing the ass of the state or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's usually people who are so traumatized, you know, mm. by by having like violent authority figures in their life that they. They just have to play that role, or they're just benefiting from it, and you know, financially or power-wise, or you know, their their level of you know renown in their community or whatever is based on you know sucking up to the state. It's not yeah. usually. It's not like I don't know. I guess I can say usually, but I haven't witnessed it where it was anybody that was like, man, it's really fun to be the state. You know, it's really fun to be a an IRS yeah. auditor. You know, they're like, well, it's the only job where I can make 60000 a year with my education or, you know, yeah. whatever. It's, it's still. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think these, these people um, that 
I mean, we can't really say that, you know, they're kissing the butt of the government. I, I just think they haven't been stepped on or they haven't been put in the position where they're being screwed by the government. So they don't think about it. You know, they're just going along and they and they, they think. I mean, they're occupied enough to say, this is, this is normal. This is my normal life and everything's as it should be. And then one day uh, something happens and all of a sudden, you know, the government's not there the way they think they should have been there or the way that they expected. And then, uh, and then everything changes. Like the reality just cracks and that crack just yeah. turns into a split. And then later it's like... against the been hiding out a whole new group <laughs> I'm going again all right you're back you're back <laughs> uh, it was just it was just breaking up for a second right? yeah okay <laughs> yeah so um yeah I I mean I don't think it's hard to believe from this perspective at least that there's people that yeah, like like you put it, like yeah, you know, government, yay, everything's great. I love paying the uh, the tax, and I don't mind if they don't tell me what they spend it on. That's cool. Um, I find I find it hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do know people like that. Uh, they're normally academics. They're not. They're normally going through. Um, they've volunteered for an extra four years of indoctrination, or you know. Education, but <laughs> but uh, with the with with a heavy government slant on it, uh, those people do exist. But you know, I don't think they're in the exactly in the majority. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kenny, something something you said um, a little bit ago about about the the guy that left just just got up and left the city life uh, twenty years ago, and he's you know, kind of on his own doing his own thing. Um, meeting meeting people like that, um, I'm, I'm sure that there's more examples of maybe not 20 years ago, people just, just left, just left their the city life, just got up one day and never went to work and said, you know, I'm living differently now. How is it cool seeing their perspective when uh, when they ask you, like, so what's happening back in the city or, or how disconnected are they exactly? Because, I mean, things are moving quick and there's a lot of weird stuff going on now. I mean, you know, we're, we're going to... Like, you know, I saw a few of the, the Tesla cars in, you know, cruising around here, and I didn't even know they were in Australia yet. But they're just cool to see, like, we're, we're seeing, like, this new future moving into uh, into reality. And someone that's been, someone that's left the city pretty, you know, I'm assuming are pretty behind on, on what, um, you know, what's, like, the latest version of the Facebook app or something. And does that blow them away? Uh, it depends on the person. Uh, like, this guy... He's he's still uh, he's all over like the freedom, the liberty forums and the message boards and stuff, you know. So he ah, okay. he stays up to date with this with a lot of that stuff. Cool. But I've definitely met a lot of people who you know unplug to a much higher extent. They they don't want it to be in their head at all either. And um, for them, it's I don't know. It's interesting because then they they usually end up with just a very small trickle of this information from like some family member or something. So it's really mm-hmm. weird to hear their, their opinions on stuff and their understanding of what's going on in the world. Cause it's usually just such a small little piece, but yeah, yeah. definitely the, the technology stuff blows. I mean, it blows people away that live in the city and watch the news. And all, you know, we started talking yeah. about 3d printers and there's tons of people that are like, Oh, what do you mean? And it's like, well, you know, we can print 
anything basically and you can do it on like a almost molecular level at this point you know like we've we've solved the need for factories like we just have to implement it you know you talk about things like you know the sling blade uh water filter or the the bicycle power generators or you know there's so much of this stuff that to me I, it blows my mind when anybody doesn't know about it and so I'm, I'm definitely not surprised by the the people who have well, I, I haven't heard about those what, what's that sling bite what's that yeah um i'm pretty sure that's the name of it uh we'll, we'll have to check it just to be sure uh but it's a it's a uh water filtration system um that sling blade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sling blade. Um, no, <laughs> that's not it. Uh, crap. Okay. I'll remember the name. You, it's something you like don't remember that. the name, but what's the well, what's the, the the idea? Uh, it's just a a water filter that was designed by a kid. He was a some teenager, uh-huh. and. Um, it, it runs on you know, less energy than the average uh, refrigerator. It's pretty small. It's like a, a couple foot by a couple foot cube. And it, it'll filter just about anything, you know, biological materials, radiation, salt water, all of that in like thousands of gallons an hour. And they're, wow. you know, super cheap comparatively. You know, we could, we could put them everywhere for much cheaper than what any of the old style uh, water filters would cost. Uh, wow. It was one of the things uh, oh, it was one of the things that the, the guy who started 5 Hour Energy it was one of the projects that he uh, that he funded. I don't know if you've seen the, the documentary about Sorry, uh, the documentary about what? Uh, it's uh, let's see uh, it's called, his name's Manoj Bargava. He was the founder of Five Hour Energy. And basically, the whole thing, uh, the whole idea of the, the company is just to put tons of money into technological innovation to help solve problems. So they created like the most efficient uh, bike power generator that we've seen so far. It's like a half an hour of riding a bike to run the average household for the day. Uh, they created you know, these wa- this water filtration. Well, they, they don't create any of this stuff. They find somebody who's who's working on these projects and needs the money to actually, you know, do the R and D and stuff. And then they just throw money at it. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a good documentary, and uh, uh, it's amazing to see. He already gave up. You know, it's like ninety nine point something percent of his income that he's he's put into these things already. Wow. Which still that's, leaves it. It still awesome. leaves him a millionaire. Obviously, <laughs> it's not like he's hurting. Yeah. But yeah. well, that's you know, that's cool. I mean, you know, if he's <laughs> if he's still live, living well and he's helping other people as well, like you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I missed the name of the the documentary. I don't know. If it was cutting out for both of us, or uh, or just me? But there's a documentary that goes through all that. Yeah, the documentary is called Billions and Change. Ah, nice. Yeah, and yeah, it's created or founded Five Hour Energy. And once he became a billionaire, he was like, "All right, now I have to, you know, 
do something with all that to make the world better. And mm-hmm. so this is all about. Great. I'll have to look, I'll have to find the, the links to that other filter. It's one of those ones that well, hopefully the person hasn't been disappeared from the internet or anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh I, I wonder how much of that actually actually goes on, but you know the fact that we even mention it means it exists at some level. Right. <laughs> Like everything's real somewhere, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's just a matter of whether you're, yeah, whether you're going to run into that reality or not. <laughs> right, cross, cross the cross the bridge into yeah. the other world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Kenny, one thing I wonder about. I know. Um, I mean, you're. You call yourself a, a voluntarist, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely align uh, with those ideas. I don't really call myself much of anything, yeah. but yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so you have, yeah, I mean, you 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 like these voluntarist ideas, like non non aggression. Um, you also like uh, the ideas of uh, community or communism, uh, people joining together and helping each other. Um, and so I know it's it, it seems sometimes it seems like a lot of um, people who, who call themselves anarchists or anarcho-communists um, they're they're resistant to the ideas of, of voluntarism, like the the idea of not not a or respecting private property or about non-aggression. Um, uh, what, do do you find that that's a, a common thing, or is that maybe I get a skewed perspective because it's just the you know it's the angry people on the internet who who uh, who I get into arguments with or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> There's probably some of that. Definitely, most of the people I know who who identify as an anarchist um, or, or identify with the philosophy of anarchy are have a much different definition of, of property from like the ANCAP one. They definitely don't believe in private property for the most part in that, but it's more like personal property, you know? And, and we, we actually had a few really good conversations about this over Adams with some people like very strongly on both ends of the spectrum coming in and a lot of us playing that middle ground. So it was really beautiful because, you know, there's, there's these ideas of like, okay, well, where does property come from? How do you, how do you own this thing? You know, and there's like the homesteading stuff, ideas with land and everything. And I don't know, I feel like a lot of that leaves a lot of gray area too, because it's like, oh yeah, you can homestead the land, you can you can take the land as long as it's unclaimed, and you can use it. It's like with today's technology, one person could use like they one person could actively utilize you know thousands of acres. In the old days, that wasn't possible. It would have been clear that they were claiming more land than they could use. And so, out of the whole, that whole thing, for me, it really just comes down to, you know, like, unless you make it or someone else, make, like, unless it's made by a human, and even then it's coming from raw materials from somewhere else, you know, like, that, that still doesn't mean it's ours, you know, like, everything you own is still there when you die. It's not like it disappears with you. It's never yours. You're just using it. It's just a matter of people who view private property. Something that, that was explained to me 
recently or that I actually like I guess I just heard for the first time in conversation in, in Arizona was people saying, No, no, my property is an extension of myself. Hmm. Your property, you know, your back. You know, he was talking to me. He's like, your backpack is an extension of you. It is necessarily your property because you use it. And I'm like, well, it's my personal property in the sense that I'm using it for sure. But I feel like that sort of thing is is basically justifies violence. It puts property on the same level as human safety. If you're saying, you know, you, it, it's the same violation of the non-aggression principle to come and take your stuff as it is to come and use violence against you you know, physically, then you're, you're saying that your stuff is more valuable than, than another person's physical, you know, physical being. I feel like there's just a lot of, a lot of, you know, programming from the the system, from this very scarcity based competition based consumption based system that's been running for so long now. It really makes people feel super attached to their, their property. And with that comes, you know, emotional, a lot of really emotional responses that aren't based in philosophy. It seems like, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's, it's a lot like talking to people about, you know, cutting animal products out of their diet. A lot of the times you can have a conversation to a point and then it just turns into like, la, 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 la. Like, no, this is, this is, this is. And you can't, you can't get anywhere with it. You know, and it'd be nice to be able to have some really, solid like something you know some that solid middle ground for these for these different groups and i guess really we have that just in the sense of you know community wise like if it's all decentralized then the anarcho-capitalist community can do their own thing and they can all trade with each other and everything and they you know the community the community next to them where everyone shares all their property can do that and it doesn't no one's no one's having any interactions that they don't fit their own philosophy. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I like. Do, I do think that's a uh, that's a, a really important law. I guess uh, you call it. Uh, the the law is when in Rome do as the Romans do. So if you go if you go to a place where that's the culture where there's where there's only personal property and no private property, then you observe that culture and if you go to a place where there, there is private property then you observe that rule yeah yeah that definitely makes sense you know makes sense to me and yeah. it just seems like the the easiest way to to deal with it you know and it, it i don't know it's a very it's an interesting one because i just don't you know i don't really have either I kind of lean towards the personal property thing, but even that, I don't care. I have no interest in property whatsoever. I have interest in access, you know, and that's one of the things I like about the zeitgeist movement and those, you know, the resource-based economy model is that it's based on people don't, you know, people don't inherently need to own things. They need access to things. You know, people want to own things, especially people you're know, growing up in America with all of this programming or in any place where, where it's programmed that, you know, your your possessions kind of define you. Oh, you have a big house and a nice car that puts you in a different social class. Like this, th- those those things cause people to, to feel like they need to own things and stuff. But really, like, you don't need to own a bike. You just need to have a bike available whenever you want to ride it. You know, there's a a lot of middle ground there that we can work towards, you know, with things like 3d printers, 
Okay, it's summertime. Yeah. Your community prints out a lot more bikes. Okay, and then the summer's over, you break them down, melt the raw materials back in, and you print out a lot of, you know, sleds for the winter. Or, you mm. know, we can, we can just adjust how many of something is available to the demand. Yeah. And, well, and I think Aaron told me that uh, in, in Amsterdam, uh, how, what's the situation with bikes in Amsterdam, Aaron, with communal bikes? Well, um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of tricky because it comes back down to um, I mean I mean I, I was there years ago and there's there's more bikes than people. I mean, it, well, at least it feels that way. So you think you know if there's a bike there and it's like the whole city is just for riding around. What's the what's the problem if I borrow a bike and, and ride it? And I leave it somewhere else and someone else uses it. And I'm sure there's people that think like that. But then it comes back to people wanting, you know, I have a bike and this is my bike, so I put a chain on it so that it's available for me. Um, and if someone was to break their chain and take a bike, then there's like a, a lack of respect there. Um, and, and obviously someone's values are going to get broken and uh, someone lost a bike. So, um, but the thing is, a lot of tourists turn up, you know, it's a big city for, for tourism. And you can buy, you can get a bike, you can get a bike for... I mean, it's not expensive. Maybe like ten dollars a day, or something. You know, you can you can hire a bike, but then they give you a chain, and then you know they, there is like a respect for bikes, but there's, there's not like an abundance where you can just throw a bike wherever you want oh, and okay. just cruise around. Because I thought <laughs> I thought you told me that was like the, there were bikes that were kind of assigned to be for anyone. Well, where the uh, the hostel that I'll stay in at had a whole bunch of bikes. And you could just, you could just borrow them and bring them back, and there was no there's no dramas. Um, and there was people that would bring back bikes that weren't from the hostel, and like, whoops, I don't know, I just found a bike. <laughs> so the hostel, I think, was growing a collection of bikes. Um, but but it's, it's interesting with this property stuff because it's like you know yeah you know if you go somewhere you follow the rules that are that are local. It's like there's people that don't um, respect that, and we all need to be in the same understanding. And, and even if these, if like say one community had one way of thinking and next community, it's like, at what point do they touch each other at the boundaries? And then is there a, is a certain level of, you know, we need to convert the other guys to us because we're correct and they, and they're not. And I mean, I think it comes down to respect. Like if we all respect each other and respect the way we think, and we're smart enough to understand that we all don't think exactly the same, then there's there's no reason why you know why we can't have different communities alongside each other. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's that's part of what what Rainbow shows. You know, there's there's just the very few kind of guidelines throughout Rainbow. You know, just treat everybody there as family. Don't hurt anybody else. And yeah. then there's the different communities inside of it. There's the kitchens, the camps, and each of them have you know, different rules. You know, like uh, instant soup, the kitchen that I'm part of is a vegan kitchen. The the rule that we have that nobody else has, the agreement to you, you know, our our culture is there's no animal products under the tent uh, under the tarp. You know, we got like a hundred foot tarp that covers our whole area. And so, you know, it, it's but we don't expect any you know, obviously we don't expect that to apply anywhere except directly under our tarp. And it's yeah, that if we can have, I feel like if we just have the, the basic, like, non-aggression, like, I, I love the non-aggression principle. I think that it doesn't, I don't, I don't apply it to property, necessarily. Like, I'm not going to go around just, like, taking people's stuff that they use, but I also don't 
you know, if I took somebody's stuff, I don't think they would have the right to use violence against me. I think that would always be an escalation if you're doing something to the physical human body after they did something to your property or your inanimate stuff. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> well, a, just with the, just with the, the non-aggression principle, was it, no, it was actually Kurt that brought it to my attention. And, you know, and, and that, that's a funny story within itself. But I, I mean, you, you think about it like I, I actually think um, it's interesting. I actually think I'm pretty more passive. Like I think if some, depending on what it was, I think if someone was to um, because the, the example I was put forward, if someone's stealing your wallet, you know what? What's that? What is someone's <laughs> level of? Um, <laughs> it's just like if you're not awake by now, you're in big trouble. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, the non-aggression principle. If someone steals my wallet, at what level can I inflict violence upon them to get my stuff back? Um, and, and it really depends on, on what it is because I think if somebody needed it that bad, like, you know, I got to the um, the understanding in, in Mexico because I thought, you know, the likelihood of me getting, the chance of me getting mugged in Mexico is pretty much higher than, than back here in Australia. But it just changed the way I, I was thinking. It's like, you know what, if, if I was to get mugged and someone tried to take my, my ring or my watch, it's like, maybe I don't need such an expensive ring or watch. And maybe if they want my watch, I'll just give it to them. Mm. And just, you know, wish them all the best. Like, there it is. I hope it serves you well, or I hope you get some good money for it, for whatever you need. And that, and that's the end of it. It's like so easy just to hand something over. And it's like, you know what, I'm not in a position where that's going to affect my life. I'll just go buy another watch. And it's not a big deal, or uh, or my wallet. It's like, yeah, I've got enough cash for the day. You know, if the if the guy robs me ten bucks, like, you know what? I would have given it to him if he asked me for it, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. That's kind of uh, some people tell me that is that is kind of a, a weird unwritten rule in Mexico, like if uh, like. Say you're in Mexico City and, and somebody stops you and say, "Hey, I'm sorry, I have to do this, but give me your wallet." <laughs> and, and you're like, "Well, all right, if you really need it, <laughs> yeah. oh, come on." Yeah, I've, I've heard those stories about how they uh, guys get on the buses to. I mean, they, they mug the whole bus, and there's one at the back of the bus that like, jumps in the back doors, one on the front. I mean, I've never seen it, but this is what I've what I've heard. And, you know, they're waving their guns around and they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm you know, basically I'm going to go home and pray for myself for doing this. But, yeah, my mate's got a big garbage bag, wallets, phones, and jewelry in the bag. Again, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this. Um, it's just, you know, we're in these times. And it's, it's a funny dynamic. <laughs> it, sounds that like a bit, it sounds like they've taken a little more than just what's necessary. I mean, do they well, have but, 200 yeah. kids or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is the, the buses are packed. I guess I'm talking peak hour on the okay, a bit after peak hour, maybe eight o'clock at night. Um, you know, out in the outer suburbs of Mexico City, and you know, there, there could be forty people on you know on a twenty-five seater bus, and you know, you're creaming, like you're squeezing through, and uh, yeah, the whole bus just gets, um, yeah, robbed. <laughs> but crazy. Yep. But, these, but people adjust, and people, people know I've got enough for my for my ticket to get home, 
and um, and and that and that's it. And and people don't buy expensive phones because they they know the chance of it of it actually sticking with them. Um, and and they they don't you know they they don't buy things of value or they don't take it to work. It's like it just you know they they go expecting to lose it and they wonder how long is it going to be before I lose this. I don't know. Well, then I'll just get the cheap one just to get me through the next month or whatever. Just change a complete change of mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a big uh, kind of a, a weird thing uh, with the, the 43 and a Johnson Alpha. Um, do you know much about this, Ken? Well, am I still here? I can't hear anything. No, I mean, I'm here. If you can mm-hmm. hear me. Okay. Can you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do, you, yeah. do you know much about the, the situation with the 43 and the Johnson Upper? The what? The, <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's a no, I guess. So, <laughs> 43 uh, teaching students, um, they call them normalistas, normalists. Uh, that is... Uh, teachers in in normal schools <laughs> or like high schools um, and uh, for some reason they have this tradition uh, where the, the, the students will go and commandeer a, a school a bus um, so they go and uh, they'll stop the public bus and they'll say hey listen mr. bus driver we don't have any money but we need you to take us to to this uh, these locations, uh, and um, the the unfortunate thing was, uh, I mean, this this is interesting too because it's a it's this practical, it's a, like, like a real life example of what you're talking about 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 the placing property above human life, um, because what happened was, um, I mean, if the bus driver just you know, took these these normalists or these these, uh, these communists around to a couple of places around town and dropped them off, and uh, you know that would have been it. But the the unfortunate thing was uh, there was a large amount of drugs in that bus, um, which would, the bus driver was like moonlighting as a as a drug trafficker, uh, and so the 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 cartels. Um, found out about this and they're like what is going on like these these uh these university students is trying to steal our drugs or what the hell is this uh and so the apparently what happened was the cartels called the police and the police said okay well we're going to take care of business uh and i, I believe 42 of those 43 students are, are still missing um so you know when when i first got the whole story about it, I was like, well, you know, if you go around stealing buses, I mean, something something like that is might well happen. Not that they deserved it, but that's, uh, you know, that's the kind of consequences uh, which can happen. But, um, yeah, I mean, from your perspective, there's no, that, um, like, that there's no way that could be justified, um, even in... I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, the, the point is, I mean, they probably shouldn't have died in any case. Um, and, the, you know, the property was placed above human life. Uh, and that's the, the, the sad thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely don't. So, yeah. 
obviously cartels aren't really acting philosophically anyways, you know. They're not principled <laughs> well, in their in their way of doing things. But yeah. uh, about about two months ago we actually had a talk up in uh, Denver. We are Change Colorado has weekly meetings and once a month the meeting is just a, a discussion on a topic. You know, and the last one I was at was uh, self-defense versus uh, violence. You know, where do we draw the line? And so we went through a lot of these different, you know, old things like the, the Code of Hammurabi and things like that, you know, where people hear an eye for an eye. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, an eye for an eye wasn't if someone takes your eye, you get to take his eye. It's if someone takes your eye, you can take no more than his eye. You can't. It's the idea of, you know, only up to the same level of force. So if someone is threatening you, you know, they're saying, or in a lot of times it's not even like a truth, right? It's not like, I'm going to kill you if. It's just, hey, do this. And the, the threat is implied, you know. Then there there's some level of, you know, there's like immediate danger there. But like if someone breaks into your house while you're not there and takes your stuff and you like got back home and saw him, and shot him, you know, it's pretty, or even just t- tackled him, even, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it was wrong, but you did escalate the situation. It went from uh, a, something that lacked physical violence to a situation with physical violence. And, you know, the non-aggression principle is great, but I feel like it, it misses out on the fact that just because you you can use violence in response to violence, it doesn't mean it it's ever going to be the the best response. It's not necessarily going to yes. be the most effective. It's certainly not going to be the most, you know, healing. It's not going to be the response that moves mankind forward. You know, mm. uh, a, a big thing that has been has been getting caught on to. Uh, I found recently is unitive justice. Uh, there's this woman, Sylvia Clute, is the main you know uh, presenter on these ideas. And they've been having unit of justice circles, uh, trainings, basically, all over Colorado in the Midwest. And then she's starting to do some tours. Or at least I'm starting to become aware of them. I'm sure she's been doing it for a long time. Um, and they're running through actual, you know, role-playing situations and stuff. And it's it's a truly, like, anarchist approach to these things. And although she would never say that, you know, it's not it's not necessarily what what labels she uses for things. But it is. It's... It's the idea of, you know, how do we make the victim whole and how do we heal the the societal causes that would lead someone to doing that thing, you know? Because most crimes don't happen because someone's a sociopath. Most crimes happen because of, you know, socioeconomic pressures of some kind, whether it's childhood trauma, you know, mm-hmm. they just lost their job and they're broke and, you know, or a drug addiction or whatever. They're these things that are systemic. They're not like, it's not like someone's just making a personal choice to go do this. It's usually based on a whole lot of uh, Oh, where'd he go? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and hopefully yeah. he comes back in a minute. Um, something I, I kind of saw on these lines um, a little while ago, it had to do with uh, the situation in South Africa. And in South Africa, they've, um, you know, they, they get carjacked a lot. Well, this is what at least I'm led to believe. So there, there's car 
car manufacturers or car companies that make accessories for cars, and they've got these like anti-carjacking systems where there's like flamethrowers that come out the side of the car. So if you're like held up at lights, you press the flamethrower button, and then you do get at least um, hopefully more scared than than crispy. <laughs> it's like just enough to like you know maybe put his hands up drop his gun or or, you know at least gives you a chance to to get away yeah um and then you know it makes you think about well kenny what you're just saying like i think a lot of people they don't they have this idea that yeah i can i can defend myself with force they've already like predetermined that they've got that in their head that if someone tries to mug me yeah i can i can fight back and that's okay with them until it actually happens. And then when it happens, everything's like this reaction. And like if, if somebody, um, if I got caught in a fight, I wouldn't, because I don't fight every day, I would have no idea how hard I punch. And just in the in the reaction and the adrenaline, you know, I just knock somebody out by accident. I was like, you know, I, I didn't mean to hit you that hard. Like I didn't, I didn't mean for you to fall over and hit your head and die. I didn't mean to punch you in the chest and, and stop your heart. Like I didn't mean to do any of this. It's just that you scared me. And um, and I was already in that understanding that that if something happened like this, I would react like that. So, I mean that that that's where I think the the non-aggression principle is kind of um, it's good, but it needs to have like a, a reactionary understanding, and people need to be uh, at least they they need to face to what level am I willing to go and for what things? Um, maybe like a an earlier or, you know, pre the situation understanding because most people that say, okay, if someone holds me, holds me up and, and they've had some kind of training that they're going to go full force straight away, just, just because they're, they're, you know, the adrenaline kicks in and they just take over and all of a sudden, you know, they don't know what they're doing. It's all reaction. Right. Well, that's the thing though, is that it's also the more training you have, the more familiarity You know, the more that you've practiced being choked out or being thrown around or, you know, the more that you've been in these situations in a, a, you know, not life threatening way, the more practice you have at that, the better you can respond to these things. You know, someone who's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is much less likely to accidentally kill somebody when they come at them with a knife than somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, you know, and, and just reacts out of that natural self-defense instinct because they don't know yeah. the strength. And the guy who's done jujitsu not only knows his own body more, but he knows ways to stop that person without causing, you know, that kind of permanent damage. You grab wrist and yeah. shoulder, break their arm. Like, you get, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it, it's just like a person carrying a gun who has, you know, no, no practice with it, really. They just carry it because it makes them feel safe versus someone who, has gone through training and does, you know, like practices with it and, and practices how to, how to defend themselves without it. So it's not their first response as well. Yeah. You know, it all comes to, it's all about preparing yourself physically and mentally, you know, for whatever, whatever situations you, you think you're going to, you're going to face. And uh, I, I feel like, there's just a, it cuts back on the fear a lot too, you know, like I, I'm nowhere near a black belt of anything, but I, I know that I can defend myself. I've defended myself plenty of times and I know, you know, I know what it feels like to get hit. I know what it feels like to get cut. Like I'm not worried about those things. And also, you know, I, 
there's a lot of I don't know, people have attachment to a lot of stuff, you know, from their life to those possessions. And that attachment yeah. makes things a lot more difficult. You know, if somebody came and asked me for anything that I have, give me your backpack, give me your wallet, give me your whatever. Like, okay, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to be like, woo, somebody took my stuff. But, you know, it's not going to have an emotional impact on me like that. Yeah. Because I don't put attachment to those things. And I, I feel like it's the attachment to those things that can make the, the response dangerous a lot of times. You know, if someone's stealing your grandfather's watch, you're going to react a lot less critically than if someone's just like, hey, give me the $100 in your pocket. Because one has an emotional attachment and the other doesn't. Yeah, good points. Yeah. I, I, just, I just think, you know, people need, well, kids. Um, when I was doing Krav Maga, there was, um, which is like the, the Israeli and hand-to-hand combat, always before class, if I got there early, it was so cool to see kids that were in primary school um, learning these same skills. And, I mean, it's basic. I mean, they weren't doing, like, full-on fighting. It was more like just grappling and, and uh, you know, the way, the way kids would play normally, that's basically the way I'd describe it, you know, the way they just wrestle and throw each other around. But they were learning their strength, they are learning how to move, they are learning how to fall correctly um, and how, how to get up quickly and... I just thought, you know, this is, this should be primary school. Like, yeah. uh, how, how is this not in society, in built in, into the systems of education? Um, and then you got people that, you know, grow up and they've never seen or done any of this, mainly because of interest. And they're, they're living in the city and they're working late, but they've got no, like, personal skills in, in anything to self-defense or any anything reaction. And, and it's like, you know, they're in a very, they dangerous place um, for them and people around them because they, they don't know how to carry themselves. Right. Well, and, and if we look at it, really, it's kind of a new thing. You know, uh, there, there's very few points in human history where you didn't have to know how to defend yourself, whether that was from, you know, the next village over or the next empire over or the mountain lines between your house and the, the nearby town. You know, for most of human civilization there there was that level of you know you could get attacked by something and people carried a knife they carried a spear they carried a musket whatever and i I feel like it really you know it opens people up to the victim mentality a lot more when they actually don't have any tools to defend themselves in a physical sense a purely physical sense if you don't you know you don't know how to use a gun you don't own one you don't know how to hand-to-hand fight you know you've never practiced that you don't if you don't know these things, then anyone with any level of experience there automatically can victimize you. And I, yeah. I feel like that's yeah. that's part of why it's not in the system right now, you know, because then you can have cops who don't shoot very well and they've got poorly made guns and, you know, they, their training with those things is very minimal, but they can still overpower people who have no training whatsoever really easily. You know, where it's like yeah. any any average cop goes, you know, pulls a gun within a couple feet of someone who has, you know, whether it be military training, Krav Maga, Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, you're going to have that gun out of his hand before he can do anything. Because, yeah. you know, there's action-reaction times. If you're within 10 feet, generally, the action's going to be faster than the reaction. So if I move towards you, I'm going to get to you and do whatever I'm doing before you can respond to it, unless you are trained and have, you know, this honed reaction times as well. But yeah, yeah it's really 
you know, if, if you don't know how to defend yourself, then in your mind, you are a victim already, even if nothing's ever happened to you. You just, when you hear about somebody being robbed, you can visualize yourself being robbed because you're like, oh, I wouldn't know what to do. But if you know what to do, then you're like, oh, if that happened, then I would, you know, I would deal with the situation. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the only time in, in history where we're unable to defend ourselves. And that's the way that society's built it up. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I can't even have um, something like a, a pocket knife that you'd use just for, for pruning a, I don't know, a plum tree or something. Or, you know, you, you, and I get a, a, prune, a tool for a knife tool. You can't have in Australia unless you've proven that you're going to work or you're coming home from work. It's like it's illegal. You can't have anything. I don't know. Like, are they going to take that to you? can't have a screwdriver on you. Right. Or you, you, you could, you can't carry, you know, a, a stainless steel pen because that could hurt somebody. It, I mean, <laughs> it's it's going way too far. It's yeah. I, I think that's the way the laws are going in the UK <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Even well to that to that extreme. Yeah. I mean, even a, a butter knife would be, <laughs> be illegal to carry. Uh, Shit. Sure. Technically. <laughs> Carries the knife name. <laughs> the little one, you know, the soft cheese with, but it's a knife. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I forgot I had it. I love <laughs> this one. Yeah. There's one story I like about uh, Emperor Norton um, in San Francisco, and there was like two, two big gangs. I think it was like a, a, a Caucasian gang and a, and a Chinese gang or something, and it, it looked like things were going to get really messy, like maybe 20 or 50 people on either side, uh, and Emperor Norton walked um, directly in between them uh, and got on his knees and started reciting the, the Lord's Prayer, and I guess everybody was just so confused, they just walked away. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> yeah, and I, it, it makes me wonder, like, is this some kind of not exactly a, a, a cheat code, but like like something you can say to somebody in a really intense situation, which makes them just just uh, maybe change their state very quickly. Like some people say, from this this comes from NLP, where you, someone is really angry at you, and you go like this to their face, and you say, "I love you," and uh, and it makes them so confused that they have to stop being angry. <laughs> I, I've definitely seen a lot of ways that you can you can shift somebody's energy really quickly that way. Mm. You know, um, yeah. a lot of my activist work before I left Portland was with the Portland Peace Team, and, and that was our whole thing: is we would do trainings for ourselves, practice all the time, and then we would go out and offer trainings to different activist groups and stuff on nonviolent conflict de-escalation. You know, okay, you're you're doing a protest and guy on the street starts screaming at the crowd you you know you lazy worthless hippies how do, how do you de-escalate that or someone in the crowd is like about to throw something through a window you know how do you de-escalate that there's always ways we can redirect the energy we can we can you know help shift each other i know i've had experiences myself where we're in guatemala uh heading into town to get groceries for the rainbow gathering so there's like nine of us in a you know, an old Chevy van and we're going down these beat up highways and then there's a, a police or a military or some guys with machine guns set up a little blockade and they stopped us and they're, 
you know, asking for paperwork and stuff. And obviously the car has no paperwork. None of us had paperwork. I think I had my passport and one other person had a passport. And they're like, you know, aggressive. And it's, it's looking like it might not be fun. And so I give him my passport and they get the other one and the driver hands into him and he's, he's, he gets out of the car to talk to him a little bit. And I just sit in the back of the van. I just start oming and everyone else <laughs> in the van starts oming. And about two minutes later, they just give him back our passports and tell us to leave. They didn't ask for a bribe. They didn't hassle him. Just nothing. They're just like, oh, here you go. Move along. You know, it's, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, correlation not causation you know by any means but it it's i've definitely experienced you know being able to shift somebody really quickly you know like one of my favorite adam kokesh video is you know the the nonviolent communication uh, from his first the uh, the first book tour like it was somewhere in the south you know and obviously he's talking about his time in the military and you know how much he regrets it and, you know his the illusions that people are under when they go into the military. And then as soon as the talk's over, he's going downstairs to like hang out and sign books and stuff. And this big, you know, military or ex-military guy comes up and he's like, I heard you were talking crap about the armed forces, this and that. And then it's just like a five minute video of this guy literally like, let's go outside right now. Like what? Like, you know, if he wasn't in a bar where he was probably a, a, a regular, he would have punched Adam right that second. And within a couple minutes, he's taking a copy of the book and walking away completely deflated. That enter, that anger is gone, you know. And that was when Adam had like pretty recently discovered nonviolent communication and started practicing those things himself. I feel like that's, you know, there's so much aggression in in things that we can we can move past uh, just by by doing it ourselves, you know. Uh, by by working on the the basis of that aggression in ourselves, like here. So today there was a um, there's a the no dapple the the Dakota Access Pipeline. There's a, a worldwide or at least nationwide protest today, and I found out about it you know while it was going on. And the the company that's running that whole project is actually based here in Houston. And so there's a bunch of people down there protesting, and Derek went down to record it and be a part of that. And they said it was about an hour and a half of just people and chanting and you know being outside and having signs and everything. And then he looks over, everybody looks over because there's a ruckus, and the cops are throwing somebody on the ground to arrest him. And they, you know, he runs over, and Derek's like, "Get off of him! Get off of him!" You know, the video will be up really soon. It's it's pretty intense. And he got back, you know, and he was he was in tears about it because he was so disappointed with the aggression with which he responded to the situation. You know, and it's like that's not that like, we can't we can't bring the same thing to it and expect to change what's going on. You know, you can't you can't add fire to fire and get anything but a bigger fire. And and it goes into, you know, not just our actions, but the way we communicate and it's, uh, I don't know, I feel like, like nonviolent communication is one of the most important things we can all learn and practice and, and how that applies in, you know, whether you're dealing with a drunk person, whether you're dealing with a police officer, whether you're just dealing with something that comes up, you know, you get some kind of news and anger flares up in yourself and how you process that. We, 
we as a as a species the human race is pretty emotionally stunted from you know generations of statism and control and not learning how to communicate emotions and not learning how to process our emotions and learning to cover them up to mask them with drugs and alcohol to write them off as just animal things that we don't need you know there's that's why yeah my focus is so much on like the healing side that's you know working on my trauma getting rid of any of those automatic responses to two things that are based on animalistic urges or or old programming and stuff uh you know we yeah there's there's a lot to be said for how much the brain forgets things when it comes into these high stress situations you know and yeah and it's it's going to go back to the the more physical emotional responses rather than your logic you know when somebody pulls a gun on you if you haven't ever practiced this what you're going to do in that situation if you haven't practiced how to even not that situation but how to calm yourself in a moment of fear you know like i <laughs> i've been having a lot of run-ins in that one i've had some run-ins with the with the road pirates here in the us recently you know and they all they all wear their badges and their uniforms and your first response when you see the flashing lights is like your head, heart starts racing. It's like, oh shit, a guy with guns behind me and he wants to come up and steal my stuff. And it's, you know, it's been really good practice to get in the, the habit of, you know, just really dropping into the body, focusing on your breath, long, slow breaths, calming yourself down, steadying your voice, and then dealing with them literally. Huh? Um, and <laughs> Derek's going to be filming something too. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's been really interesting to see like how the, the reactions change from them versus when I was, you know, doing protesting and you know, activism in that sense where I never had any interactions with police that ended anyway, but like we were both really frustrated and angry. I'm sure, you know, it was now the, the last time I dealt with them, I was I was piloting an automobile through Colorado, and he, he comes up with his lights and he comes over and he's, you know, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, you know, no, I, I assume there was some sort of emergency. The you turned on your lights, you know, declaring a state of emergency, so I was getting out of your way. Uh, can I see three pieces of identification that prove you're a law enforcement officer? And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, like, well <laughs> legally, you have to give me three pieces of identification to prove that you're a law enforcement officer. And so he pulls out his, his ID and his, his uh, business cards. And he's like, I've got these. I'm like, well, that's only two. And he's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I've got those. Here's the thing. I pulled you over because of this and that. I, I'm like, you see your, your license and registration. And I was like, well, I don't have any paperwork to give you. Uh, I'm not a driver. I don't, I don't have a driver's license. Driving is the act of operating a motor vehicle for commerce. Uh, we're just traveling home right now. And, you know, back and forth for a while. And he leaves. He goes back to his car. And I would assume he's going to, like, run the plates. He's going to, you know, I don't know what he's doing back there. And uh, an ambulance went by at some point before he came back. And he comes back and ducks down a little bit more, and he sees my friend Chelsea in the the back seat with my video camera recording the whole thing. And all of a sudden, his tone changed a little bit. (laughs) And he's like, well, uh, you saw saw the ambulance go by. I've got to go where it's going, so I'm going to let you go. If you had just given me your paperwork, I was just going to give you a warning. You know, you don't need to be a street lawyer. Was I being rude to you? Was I being mean to you? No. I, you know, I was being polite. Next time one of us is trying to be polite to you, just, just cooperate. 
and then gave me his business card and drove off. And I'm like, <laughs> that, it was just such a weird... And of course, we got done, and none of the video actually recorded. The camera just didn't take it. <laughs> so luckily, nothing uh, happened, because I would have not have had any of my evidence. <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience to to really, you know, start practicing that stuff, you know, and, and coming at it in a completely non-aggressive way, super respectful, but also like, no, I, I know what I'm talking about and I know that you don't have the right to do anything to me. And he just like, you know, this is not the citizen you're looking for. And he just left. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, got to look for an easy target. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I did. I saw your post uh, like a, a month back, uh, talking about some of that. Uh, maybe not exactly free man on the land stuff, but it's it's along those lines about about uh, declaring your own uh, sovereignty or something like that. Yeah, yeah, getting uh, just disconnecting from the matrix. Uh, there's this mm-hmm. this good friend of mine, Jay Noon. Uh, if you look him up on YouTube, he he was a free stater for a long time. He's done a lot of a lot of uh, that, like, combative in the courtroom activism. You know, his family never paid taxes on their property for a long, long time. They've, none of them have Social Security cards or uh, driver's licenses, you know, and they just go fight it in court all the time. And, uh, wow. yeah, he's, he's coming to Anarchapulco this year. Um, so that's exciting for him to be bringing that down. Uh, yeah, I, I had a run-in with the, the Road Pirates in Colorado again a few months ago. Uh, I was I was delivering a truck from a friend to another friend, and like four and a half hour trip, and I literally got pulled over one point zero miles from their house, and the cops just giving me a hard time. They gave me a ticket and all this stuff, and I just said, "Yeah, okay, whatever." And I, I went and talked to Jay, and I was like, "So, what do you think I should do?" I'm obviously not going to pay it. I'm obviously not going to go into court. And he turned me on to a lot of research by some guys like uh, Curtis Collenbach and a few others into, yeah, where the, what the birth certificate is, what the certificate of live birth is, you know, the foundation of these things, you know, a lot of people know, like the idea of the straw man, you know, the all capital letters name isn't you, but not like the more in-depth part of that, like, what is it, where does it come from, you know, when, when you're born, in a hospital, they take the afterbirth, they take the placenta. And I have friends who were just having a conversation about this yesterday. I have friends who, you know, they, they would not let them keep the afterbirth. The doctor, like, they will take it from you. And they, they threaten to call the cops and stuff. Right? Well, what it is, or at least what this, the, these researchers have come up with, obviously I haven't, like, seen these, you know, it's, we can't really see a lot of the inner workings of the state. Um, but the idea is they, they take the afterbirth and they claim it as abandoned property. It's a, an article in commerce that's been abandoned at sea. 45 days after that is when the certificate or the, the birth certificate is created. And that's where the all capital letters name first comes from is the birth certificate. And you'll never see the original copy. The, the mother gets like copy number three. The county gets copy number two. Like the original is... Smithsonian, the Vatican, <laughs> those super hidden places, you know, and uh, New York Stock Exchange, right? Yeah, there's a lot of ideas, and but it, they they take the that same name that is your name, the certificate of live birth has your name written, you know, capital first letter, lowercase for the rest, 
and then the birth certificate has all capital letters. And one and the certificate of live birth most people never even get either. Uh, the certificate of live birth basically at least what this understanding explains and you know what what these folks have done and it seems to be working you know again court like jay's had tons of cases just thrown out you know they give him the ticket he goes to court and they're like oh god no we're just not even going to deal with this um but it's the certificate of live birth is literally the title for your body you know just like the pink slip to your car like, it is the ownership document for your physical body and there's a, a well process of getting an authenticated certificate of live birth where you get the, the certified copy from the county where you were born. You send it off to the state department of your state and they authenticate it saying, yeah, this is the true copy and everything. And you send it off to the secretary of state of the United States. And then you have a fully authenticated copy, which is legally as good as the original. And so there's this whole process of like, now you actually hold the ownership document for your body. That's why they, you know, they treat people like they do here. They can, the police can just throw you around and they're not going to get in trouble ever. You know, they can do whatever they want to your body because they are enforcers of the corporation of which those bodies are property. Or at least, you know, in the game that they've created, that's the way that it's set up. And yeah. that just led me down some really big rabbit holes. A lot of this is stuff I had heard from you know, Jordan Maxwell back in the day and stuff. But there's just so much of this crazy, I don't know, it's like this pseudo-occult, just weird, I don't even know, I don't even know how to describe it. There's just so much weird shit that goes on with, like, the paperwork there and all those numbers and the names and stuff that there's something to it. Because when people start start stepping out of it, when they when they claim the, the, the DNA afterwards, like, that's another thing. You can do a paramount claim of DNA and afterbirth. You can get the afterbirth back because it's your property that they've been holding. You know, no one claimed it. Your mother didn't ever put in the claim to that abandoned property, but you can. And when you do these things, it it just I don't know if it's necessarily works the way that these guys explain it, but something works because the way that the government interacts with you changes completely at that point. Yeah, so there's yeah, something, well, I don't know if it's just because yeah. they don't want to talk about it or what, but there's something, you know, there's something to be said for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think so. I um, uh, Barry Cooper did a did an article a, a while back about this, and and you know, he's of course he's got a, helped a lot of people get off drug charges and that sort of thing. But his take is that with with this kind of stuff, um, the reason they leave you alone uh, is because you file so much paperwork that it just makes it not worth their while um and i think that's probably part of it but i don't think that explains everything um right. because it, uh, i i went to court a couple of times and I, I i started asking all these questions um one guy who has a different take on it um uh he, did, he doesn't call himself free man or sovereign mark stevens um and his thing is like he just asked this just a few questions, and it's generally along the lines of, well, do you have any proof that you have this document, like this law, the, the, uh, the, the code of um, the transport rules or whatever, um, do you have any evidence that this document actually applies to me or has anything to do with me? And they're like, well, 
you know, we think it does. <laughs> or they, they don't answer the question or they say, well, it's, you're in the jurisdiction of, of the state. And you're like, well, what's a, what's a state? Are you talking about a, a corporation or, uh, you know, are you talking about a physical location? Because, as you know, the state of the state of Arizona is different to the, to the physical Arizona land. State. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and so how can you tie those those two things together? Um, but I remember when I when I went into the court and yeah, I I, I started asking some questions and uh, you know, sometimes the magistrates would, would get very angry and sometimes they'd get confused and sometimes they'd, they'd uh, try to do everything they could to bamboozle me so I didn't ask any more questions and basically made it so I couldn't get a uh, you know, did their best to prevent me from getting a, a fair hearing, um, or even tried to like, even schmoozed me like like uh, the, the last magistrate kind of flirted with me or you know charmed me a little, warmed <laughs> me up so, so I did so I stopped asking so many questions. Uh, <laughs> um, Was it at least a good deal? <laughs> She didn't give. She didn't. Uh, she didn't reduce the fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> she. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at least the first magistrate reduced the fine. But. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, so all this, all this stuff with birth certificates, and I mean, I've looked into it, but it's becoming more real now that I'm going to have to deal with this myself for future offspring. Right. In you know, mm-hmm. in, you know six months' time. Right. So, um, I mean, it's been crossing my mind, but I need to find out like, a good source of where I can do, where I know exactly what I'm doing, because you know this is, I mean, this is what we do. It's it's about it's about peaceful action and not you know not waiting until something happens and then trying to work out how do we reverse stuff. It's like I need to I need to work out what to do now. I haven't found exactly a, like a, a foolproof. Here it is, the steps. You know, walk through this and yeah birth certificate, this is what you need to do and click this and send that paperwork in. I mean, I'm going through an immigration process right now that is nothing short from insane. And you can't call anybody. You can't ring anybody. Um, I've got an agent that's working directly with me now because time is too time consuming. And they like, this is, it's a, it's a legal immigration process. So you literally need to be a lawyer to be able to fill the forms out and understand exactly what you need to do because they've done it that way on purpose. They don't want people coming to Australia anymore. That's the only conclusion I have. And, uh, I mean, I'm fine, but I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to send uh, my wife back to Mexico. We've been married for over two years, been together for almost four. It's like, why now? Just because I'm home, it, it's got very complicated. So yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. And sure, <laughs> but I've got a lot of work ahead of me, and it's incredible like the amount of time I've put into this, and you know, getting documents sourced, um, getting the Apple Steel credited. I mean, you got to got to do that. Everything's got a cost to it. You know, like I'm, I'm talking, um, I could buy a house in Mexico and live. You know, for what I've got to invest in this, and I don't even know if I'm going to hang around Australia. It's very complicated. So I need to work out for this for my child coming along. What's what do I do birth certificate wise? Because I haven't seen anything. Have you come across any um, comprehensive, um, you know, future family stuff? 
Um, because Kurt and I haven't spoken about it too much. Not anything comprehensive like that. I know a few people who are who are going through the process and kind of sharing it. Mm. Um, like Alma Alma Summer, uh, she's the the founder of the Jackalope Freedom Festival. She's got a YouTube channel and a blog and everything called Undocumented Human about her son oh, Neo. Cool. And, and uh, yeah, their their son Neo is completely undocumented. Uh, they cover his face when they're driving through cities that have the cameras at stoplights and stuff. Like he does not exist on Facebook. He does not exist. Like he he's completely outside of the system. Um, and so I know they have they have they've collected a lot of information and personal experience and stuff with that. But I haven't found I found a lot of people who have put out guides for like how to get yourself out of it, but nobody yeah. that's put out anything about like uh, you know really how to navigate that that earlier part. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know a lot of rainbows too, that they just, you know, they don't have, you know, they're born at home and they never get any sort of paperwork and stuff. And the, there was a family out of Adams, actually the family that has land next to him that we were having these conversations because they're, they're on their way to their third baby right now. And the first two, you know, they, they were totally in the system before. So they, they have birth certificates. They went to schools for a while and stuff. And now with the yeah. third one, they're really torn up with what to do next because on the one hand you don't want to put them into this you know you don't you don't want them to become whatever it is the property of a battery for you know what i mean you don't want to put your kids into this into this machine (laughs) yeah you know you don't want to plug them into this knowing what it is but at the same time if it's still around in 20 years and you didn't plug them into it they can't get a job in it you know they can't you know, if you don't have a social security card, you can't work in the United States, you know, and any, any legal business at least. So it's, it's really, uh, yeah. Well, like for you, like if you're traveling, if you're going to be going from Mexico to Australia and anywhere in between and stuff, like if your kid doesn't exist in one of these systems, chances are they're not going to let your kid travel. You know, it's, yeah. it's a really screwy situation with this, these, these, uh, these corporations controlling, you know, claiming, claiming to own all the land and controlling most of the means of transportation between them all. And I, I really have no idea. Um, you know, I can't, I can't say what you should or shouldn't do anything like that. I know my plan is, you know, I'm, I, my focus right now is to get myself to being the kind of person that I want to see raising kids. Like that is, that's my only real like goal or intention. Everything else is just part of that process happening. Yeah. And I, when I have kids, it'll be, or a kid, it'll be off the land, you know, on the land somewhere. It'll be totally outside of Babylon, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do any paperwork. I'm not, you know, they will. There definitely won't be any of that involved. And I'm I, honestly, I'm not even going to bring them into cities or like into this stuff until they've reached the, the level of awareness, you know, to have a conversation about it. Like I'm not going to bring a baby into a city full of helicopters and sirens and angry people and traffic and. Wi-Fi signals and cell phone towers and all this stuff that the human body can feel and they have no way of understanding. They have no way of asking you what it is. You know, I feel like that's a lot of the trauma that causes people to shut off um, both just like physical senses, you know, you tune out so much and like those other yeah. senses that that uh, humanity seems to just kind of lose except for the, the more new age type, you know, that, that movement. I feel like it's because there's all of this that the the children just can't handle. Um, so I know per- personally, I'm going to go like 
as far to that extreme of my children not being any part of this as possible. Um, but you know, that is, that it, that's cause that's just the way that I do things. You know, I'd rather do it the, the hard way and stay a hundred percent true to my principles and, and the, the vision of the world I want to see and, and what feels like it's going to get us there most efficiently. I'm, I'm never going to pick the easy route. I'm never going to, going to take the, the more comfortable or the, you know, the safe route when, when it comes to any of this stuff, because I feel like that's, you know, that that's not living up to my potential to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can speak for, for myself, but I definitely think Kurt feels this way too. You know, we both, um, we both admire the commitment that you bring to, um, to the movement or to the, the understanding of, of how to live. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still in, you know what I mean? Like, you know, sometimes, um, I'm caught between these these two worlds of you know it'd be nice to be over there or you know sometimes you know being here isn't too bad. I mean you got you two would have connections still um, in the in this machine like you know family members and, and things and we still operate in these zones that that are controlled. I mean it's I'm putting it like as if we're like post post world where it's like I'm out and I'm in. It's like this is incredible. Who thinks about it like this? But <laughs> that's exactly how it is. And, you know, now I'm going to be faced with some um, some tough decisions that are going to Im- impact, you know, the rest of the rest of, of my life, family life. And, I mean, at least I'm thinking about the decisions. I mean, I consider that already a win. Absolutely. To be, to be aware. Because if you're just going along with the flow and, you know, your, your child's born and it's like, yeah, no worries. We've got a new vaccine, you know. We've got a vaccine before the baby's born now for, for whooping cough or whatever. And, like, and, and you know, these... No, I mean not all are a, a, um, a compulsory, but if they're not taken, well, then what happens next? And then these guys change the rules as they go along, and all of a sudden, you know, you're not accepted in hospitals and, and schools if that's what you want to do, or um, or whatever whatever happens. You know what I mean? But it's like all of a sudden you need to start navigating these um, these landmines of, of decisions of what what's going to happen to my family, and and at, at what point am I going to receive a knock at the door and say, okay, um, yeah, your child didn't receive A, B, and C vaccination. You're a bad parent, and now the state's got your kid. Right. Well, and that's what you see happening all over the U.S. constantly. Here, it's a very active thing. There's, you know, CPS, the Child Child Protective Services is what it's called. Mm. And, yeah, they, I mean, I don't know the statistics, so I won't, I won't make anything up, but I listen to a lot of people yeah. who have had you know, different CPS whistleblowers on and stuff. And I know a lot of people have had firsthand experience of being there when a friend's child was stolen or their own kid being stolen and having to go through years of court battle to get them back. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. I feel like the most danger you have there is when you're, you're tiptoeing the two. If you're, if you're all the way over here and your kid doesn't even show up, they don't even have a record that they were born. I feel like you're safer than if you're in the middle and there's a record of them, but you're not doing the vaccines and you're doing the homeschooling because now they know about you and you know they know that you're not playing the game according to their rules. I feel like it's almost yeah. more dangerous than just completely disconnected. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's like they, they, they know where they want you to play. Um, and if, you, if you're like playing this, this double life, then uh, yeah, you, you can you can get in trouble very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of you know doing things the way that 
I and a lot of the like rainbow family and stuff do it. It's like none of us have an address that can be found. You know, like there's <laughs> like That's I think the start. the last address that exists on any, any government document or anything like that for me is you know a couple houses and like seven years ago or something. <laughs> like you know, so there's yeah, there's a uh, I feel like. It's weird. It's it's like truly living in like an underground, you know. It's like in the Matrix where they're like underneath the machines down below, like living in their own little world. And it's over there, and they know about it. And if they go over to it, they they get attacked. But when you when you stay away, you kind of have some level of safety. And it's so weird. As long as you're not talking about it. If you talk about it, and you get naughty, then they come after you. You know and that's. That's what's happening with Adam right now. Luckily, it's not kids. It's just all the craziness around his land and permits and taxes and zoning and you know. But he's a he's a face and he talks about it publicly. So they're going after him all the time. Right. And, Adam yeah. is actually doing it uh, like he's not asking permission to build anything. Right. 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 Yeah. There's already one. Um, the camp kitchen is built or was built when we got there. And then the dome is finished now. There's like just a hangout geodesic dome that's been clayed in next to it as well. So he's already, you know, two over the, the limit for what he was allowed to have out there right now. And he's got a bunch more buildings he's putting in. And yeah, he's he's been he's been dealing with them. You know what I mean? He's been, he was on a phone call while I was out there with a friend. Um, I don't know if it was Mark. He's working with Mark Stevens. I don't I, I don't know if it was Mark that was on the phone, but. You know, talking to the person, I guess the magistrate or whatever in the area, excuse me, in the area, uh, they had set a date and they were going to have a, a whole court day for him. And he created a Facebook event, like, come out and protest this, support me. And, you know, hundreds of people immediately say they're going. And the, the magistrate or the arbitrator or whatever was like, uh, we're going to cancel that. We're going to push it off a few months. And then told the, the DA or Whatever the, the the state's attorney told him, like handle this outside because I don't want to deal with it. So now they're they're offering him a deal, like here, just pay this one little fee, and we'll get we'll call it a we'll call it an exemption or whatever, and we'll make a special thing just for your rule, you know. <laughs> so he, he's 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 trying to set precedent, really. You know, he's he's not trying to just live live by himself off the grid. Like he figures if he can get them to succumb and give in on some of these things, then the next people can use that as a precedent and just keep pushing it further and further. Yeah. So, you know, his that's that's kind of just always been his thing when it comes with activism. It's like, I'm going to get myself beaten up by the cops to show people what the cops will do. You know, I'm going to get, you know, he, he makes an example of himself um, as a big part of his activism, which isn't necessarily, you know, my, it's not, not the way that a lot of us go, but it's 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 effective for sure. You know, he's, he's reaching a lot of people and he's showing a lot of people like just how ridiculous this stuff is. Like, Oh, you own the land and you can't do anything on it without them threatening you. What? So you don't own the land, right? Like either you own it or you don't. If you own it, you can do whatever you want. But in the United States, you can't own land because as soon as you stop paying property taxes, they take it from you. So obviously you're always renting it. You're never actually owning it. It's, screw it's crazy. Stuff. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. I, my my final note is um, before I before I head off is um, Kurt. I, I joked about I'll see you back in Mexico, yeah. but um, <laughs> I, I wish 
It'd be, uh, <laughs> Mexico is going to see a huge population increase if the world continues <laughs> the way it is. <laughs> People seeking freedom. Because yeah. it's like it's written into what, what Mexico is. <laughs> like even people just don't mess with you the same way. Yeah, yeah. That you pay up the inspector with a little, a little mordita, a little pride, and then uh, you know they leave you alone more or less. Or but you know, you, you've also you got like should, uh, yeah. large native um, native communities that they've got no interest in paying land taxes or, or interacting with government bodies either. That's like this is how we've lived before. This is how we're going to do our thing, and, and that's it. End of story. I, I can't wait to get back. It's so the yeah the average person their behavior and their view of the state is so different in Mexico from anywhere in the U.S. And mm-hmm. we've always got the outliers at both sides, but like the average is totally different from anywhere in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Kenny, it was, it was good to see you again. You're looking well, and yeah. um, and I'm happy to see that you you're strong. Yeah, it was great seeing you, brother. <laughs> And uh, I hope everything's going really well. Lots of love to you and your wife. And uh, yeah, hopefully Thank we'll you. see you in Acapulco. That's a plan. Awesome. Sweet deal. Okay. <laughs> see you, Kurt. So well. Love you guys. Love you too. We'll see you later. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please check the show notes in the description for a link in order to help out with Kenny's crowdfunding campaign so he can continue to explore the United States and share his his wisdom and philosophy and uh, he's leading by good example, showing and teaching people about liberty in every breath that he takes. So check the check the show notes and description for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.